We turn this morning to the fourth book of the New Testament, which is the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. John 1, reading verses 19 through 37. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. Whose shoes latch it? I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. For he was before me, and I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and did abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. We'll end our reading there. May God bless the reading of this, his inspired and infallible word. The text for the sermon is verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we come to the very heart and center of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in its beauty and simplicity. The text takes us right to the very person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with many things vying for our attention in this world and in our lives, how good it is again and again to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, the Lamb of God. Now, before we get into the text, we ought to take just a moment to familiarize ourselves with the surrounding context. The words that are uttered by John the Baptist in the text, Behold the Lamb of God, now with respect to Jesus, those words were uttered on a particular day, for the text begins, the next day, 
John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and so on. The history goes like this. John was baptizing by the Jordan River, and Jesus came to him to be baptized, and John baptized Jesus. Then Jesus immediately went out into the wilderness where he would be tempted by the devil for 40 days. While Jesus is out there in the wilderness being tempted, John keeps baptizing, and more and more people are coming out to Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was. More and more people are being baptized by him. Crowds are coming, and pretty soon we come to the end of that 40-day period where Jesus was in the wilderness. And right at the end of that period, now comes a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem saying, there's all this commotion, all these people are coming out here. What's going on? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Tell us, who art thou? And John keeps preaching, baptizing, preaching, and declaring, no, I am not the Christ, but one greater than I is coming. And then we read the words of the text. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. So here he comes out of the wilderness. Now back to John by the Jordan. All these crowds around him. And that's when John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In the verses that follow, John will recount how he had earlier baptized Jesus. And then we read in verse 35, again the next day, And then John describes to us how Jesus began selecting his first disciples and then would begin his public preaching ministry. So we have a collection collection of days, events, cluster of events here in the context. And if we put them all together, we have the day of the text. On the day before the day of the text, Jesus finishes his private temptations. On the day after the day of the text, Jesus begins his public ministry. But now on this day, the day of the text, John will announce to the people of Judah who this one is who has just come to him and will now go out and begin his public preaching and teaching ministry. And he announces the identity of this one who has come out of the wilderness as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So let's consider the text this morning under the theme, the Lamb of God come. And notice first, the coming of him. Second, the work of him. And third, the seeing of him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And the coming of this Lamb refers not only to his literal, physical, visible coming. As he came walking out of the wilderness unto John, so that John saw him coming. The text says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. But in the ultimate sense of the word, the coming of the Lamb of God is his appearance now as the glorious realization of all those picture lambs of the old dispensation. So in order to understand the coming of the Lamb of God, we need to take just a few moments to go back into the old dispensation and take a brisk walk through it, stopping at four key points to understand something about all these Picture lambs pointing to the Lamb of God. So let's begin in the time of Abel. Abel offered unto God the firstling of his flock. And undoubtedly because he had been taught by his father and mother Adam and Eve that he must take a lamb and bring it to the altar and offer it as a sacrifice unto God in hope of a better sacrifice to come. So Abel learned that he is a sinner and he understood by faith that his sin was being placed on this lamb as a substitute and a picture and a hope of a better substitute and sacrifice to come. 
and that the sacrifice would cover in the sight of God all of Abel's sins. So already in the day of Abel, God was teaching that the promised Messiah who is coming, he must die. Just like that lamb on the altar in the fire, the coming Messiah, he must die. Whoever he will be, he must be able to die. God cannot die in fire. Angels do not have a physical body so that they can die in fire on an altar. Whoever he is, he must be able to die as a sacrifice for sin. Just like that firstling of the flock. Now we move from the days of Abel to the time of the Passover in Egypt, where God taught his people three truths concerning the lamb. First of all, he taught them the necessity of blood. That was there explicitly established at the time of the Passover. So the lamb that is killed, it could not be strangled. It could not be poisoned. But it would have to have its throat slit. And then all of the blood could be collected in a basin. And then you smear. You smear all that blood over the doorpost. And when God comes and he sees the blood, God averts wrath. The firstborn will be spared When God sees the blood, blood. Secondly, God taught his people at the time of the Passover that the Messiah would not only be for individuals like Abel, but households. The whole house was required to bring a lamb. And third, the lamb was eaten in a fellowship meal so that the Israelites would take their Passover lamb and cook it and bring the meat back to their table. And they would all sit down around the table and they would eat their lamb in sweet delight one with another. And God was teaching them that when the Messiah comes and he'll die, that death will not be reason for grief and sorrow, but delight and the basis for fellowship together and with God. Blood households, fellowship meal, Passover lamb. Time of Abel, time of the Passover. Our third of four stops is Mount Sinai and the giving of the ceremonial law where God taught his people three more truths. First of all, the Mosaic law demanded continual sacrifices. One lamb on the altar in the morning at the tabernacle, and one lamb on the altar in the evening at the tabernacle every day, day after day after day, continual sacrifices. Secondly, as was true of the Passover lamb, the lamb of the continual offering must be without blemish. God was teaching his people that the Messiah, when he comes, he must be perfectly righteous and holy without any blemish. And third, the law taught the people of Israel that the sacrificial lamb was not only for individuals like Abel, and not only for families and households, but the nation. A lamb at the tabernacle. For the Israel of God, the nation. Our final stop is the time of Isaiah. And here the revelation sharpened considerably. For Isaiah explicitly prophesied that the lamb would be a person. He would be a man. A man of sorrows. The servant of Jehovah. And this man would have a willing heart. He will be despised and rejected of men. He will suffer all kinds of injustice at the hands of ungodly men, but he will not retaliate. He will not respond as a ferocious beast. He will not lash out. He will even endure all the wrath of God, but with a willing heart, he will humbly submit and go very quietly to the slaughterhouse. He is, says Isaiah, brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shear is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. 
Now look back over the entirety of the old dispensation. You see all those lambs, more lambs than we could count. So many lambs. Dying lambs as sacrifices on the altar for sin. Passover lambs with blood sprinkled, flesh eaten and enjoyed in feasting. Lambs without blemish. Lambs on the altar in the morning. Lambs on the altar at night. Lambs for individuals. Lambs for the household. Lambs for the nation. One lamb after another quietly being led to the slaughterhouse at the tabernacle. And all of them were picture lambs. And Israel knew it. They were all pictures. Not one of those lambs could take away sin. Not one of those lambs could cleanse the conscience before God. Not one of those lambs would give the sinner the right to stand before the holy God and enter into his presence. They were all picture lambs. Do you think then that there was a more climactic and greater moment in the history of the world to that point in history than when Jesus came out of the wilderness and he came walking toward John the Baptist and in the presence of all those who were surrounding him, John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God. For thousands of years, God announced through pictures that the Lamb is coming And now John the Baptist is given the honor and the privilege to make that great announcement that all the covenant people had been longing for, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and Abel. When will he come, O God? How long, O God? And you move through the entirety of the old dispensation, thousands of years. When will he come, O God? How long? Picture after picture after picture, he's coming. He's coming. And now the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God has come. Jesus is the Lamb. The Lamb. All of the others are pictures. He is the Lamb because He comes as the Lamb of God. Of God. That's a very important designation in the text. The Lamb of God. And that means many things. And that will stand as the basis for everything we will consider in just a moment when it comes to the astonishing work that He will perform in taking away the sin of the world. How could He possibly take away the sin of the world except He be the Lamb of God? That means, first of all, that he is begotten of God. He not only has a human nature according to which he can suffer and he can bleed and he can die as a creature, but he also has a divine nature. He is God of God. And that's why he will be able to make that once for all sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. Begotten of God. In the second place, that he is the Lamb of God means he was eternally appointed by God. Appointed to be the Lamb at which all those pictures would be pointing. To be the Lamb who lives forever. To be the Lamb who's the center of all of our feasting and joy and the basis for all of our joy. To be the Lamb who will be surrounded in heaven forevermore so that all the inhabitants thereof say, Worthy is the Lamb. God eternally appointed Him. He is the Lamb of God. Third, that he is the Lamb of God means he is provided by God. He did not come, this Lamb, as the result of the will and the work of any sinner. He did not come because Abel brought him forth, because one of the shepherds of Israel brought him forth, because the Virgin Mary brought him forth for Israel. He came. Because the God who is faithful to every promise he ever makes gave him, provided him to his people. 
He is the Lamb of God, provided by God in all His grace. Fourth, that He is the Lamb of God means He has the spotless righteousness of God. He's not the Lamb of the fallen and corrupt stock of Adam. He is the Lamb of God. As perfectly, morally, pure, holy, and righteous as God himself. Fifth, that he is the Lamb of God means he is qualified by God. The Holy Ghost who had just come upon him descending in the form of a dove, that Holy Spirit qualified him for his saving work. The work of his ministry qualified him for that agonizing work of going into the slaughterhouse, not opening his mouth, and dying on that altar as a sacrifice for sin. The man Jesus Christ was qualified by the Spirit of God. He is the Lamb of God. Sixth and finally, that he is the Lamb of God means he is beloved of God. You remember Nathan's story when he came to David to point out his sin and call him to repentance? There was that man who had his one little ewe lamb. Oh, he was so precious. That little lamb would sit on the man's lap, cuddle him in his bosom. He would let him eat from his hand and drink out of his cup, right with his sons and daughters. That man had so much love for his one little lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. Eternally and forever loved by his God. And he needs to know that. Because when he goes to that slaughterhouse, and he goes upon the fire of that altar, he will not experience anything that feels like the love of God. But he must know, even on that altar, he is the Lamb of God. Beloved of God. The Lamb of God is come. Now, it's exactly because he is, as to his identity, the Lamb of God, that he is able to perform the astonishing work of the text, which no one anywhere could ever perform, no creature in heaven or on earth. Only this one can perform this astonishing work. What is that work? The text says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which or who, and now this is his work, taketh away the sin of the world. World. Say that, and say it without any hesitation. And without any nervousness on account of Arminianism, say it as the gospel of the Word of God. World, He taketh away the sin of the world. Now understand that by the term world, John the Baptist did not mean, no one in his audience misunderstood him to mean, And the Holy Spirit who inspires the words of the text does not mean every single human being, head for head, none accepted. World in the Bible does not have to mean every single human being, head for head, none accepted. Luke 2 verse 1. And there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Not only the world, all the world. And no one has ever supposed that Caesar Augustus was attempting to tax 
Every single human being, head for head, none accepted, including those on distant continents, which to that point in history had not yet even been discovered. All the world. That is, all the taxable people of the known world of the Roman Empire of that day around the Mediterranean Sea. World in Scripture does not have to mean every human being none accepted. In fact, to say that world in this text means every single human being head for head none accepted is unholy, profane, Arminian heresy that turns the glorious Lamb of God into a defeated beggar. Arminianism teaches that Jesus died for every single human being head for head none accepted. But that death of Jesus did not actually save every single human being. Arminianism will acknowledge that there are millions and millions of people who perish everlastingly in hell for their sins. How could that be? If Jesus died for all, how is it that not all are saved, but only some are saved, while many perish in hell? Well, for the Arminian conception, what is the definitive act of salvation is the choice that the sinner makes according to his own free will, whereby he decides, he chooses to accept that sacrifice and to believe in Jesus. So Jesus dies for all, none accepted. In the preaching of the gospel, Jesus declares his love for all, none accepted. Jesus pleads with all, pleads with them to come to him and accept him and the sacrifice he made for them. Only some do. Only some make a decision of their own free will to accept Jesus Christ, and then many reject him and are damned. He willed their salvation. He shed his blood for them. He pleaded with them. He did everything he could to save them, but in the end, man stymies the lamb. Man's will triumphs over the lamb's will, and he is reduced to a defeated beggar. He wants to save them all and died for them all, but only some are actually saved. We could have more respect for a full-blown universalism that teaches God loves all human beings, Jesus died for all human beings, and all human beings will be saved in the end. There is no such thing as hell. At least then the love of God is sovereign and saves. Not so in Arminianism. The text itself makes plain that the Lamb did not die. For the sins of all human beings, none accepted. The text makes that very plain with its verb. Verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb did not merely intend to take away the sin of the world. He did not simply will to take away the sin of the world, attempt to take away the sin of the world. As the Lamb of God, He actually, He effectually, He really did take away the sin of the world so that every single human being for whom He died, there has been made For that individual, the payment for sin, God's wrath is appeased, righteousness is obtained, all the blessings of salvation, including faith itself as a gift, has been earned and will be freely bestowed. He actually took away the sins of all those for whom he died. If the Lamb took away the sins of all human beings not accepted, Then Jesus died and took away the sins of Cain and Pharaoh and Judas Iscariot and the Antichrist 
and Cain, and Pharaoh, and Judas, and the Antichrist will certainly be glorified in heaven. If he died for them, if he took away their sin, they will be saved because God is just. And God will never come to a man and require of him that he pay for his sin when the lamb already has that sin covered. If the lamb covered the sins of all, all will be saved because God is just, his word is true, and he is faithful, but not all are saved. For the lamb did not take away the sins of all human beings, none accepted. He took away the sins of his elect. He himself said so. John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. When the text says world, it doesn't mean every single human being not accepted. The text means the entire living organism of elect humanity, as all those elect, Jew and Gentile, are found all throughout the world. World. Now that is an astonishing word. And do not let it be taken away by Arminianism. World. Not merely elect individuals like Ahab. Not merely the elect in the household as at Passover. Not merely the elect within God's nation of Israel, but the world. The Lamb came to take away the sin of the world. The whole living organism of elect humanity, wherever they are found all throughout the world, so that He takes away the sins of those in the southern hemisphere and those in the northern hemisphere, those who live in third world countries and those who live in first world countries, those who live in the cold Arctic and those who live in the tropics, those who live out in the vast prairie lands and those who live in the congested interurban city areas or out on the islands of the sea. Those who have darker skin, those who have lighter skin, those who speak Hebrew or Spanish or English, those who are male, those who are free, those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are bond, those who are free, those who live and move around the Holland, Michigan area, and those who live and move around Manila of the Philippines. World, he taketh away the sin of the world. The whole organism of elect humanity, as those Jews and Gentiles are found throughout the world. World. Sin. The scriptures are often surprising, and here too. We would expect the plural, which taketh away, there's a lot of them, many of them, which taketh away the sins of the world. But instead we have the singular, which taketh away the sin of the world. You ought to imagine a mass an organic, a growing mass. I suppose we could think of a cancerous mass. But an enormous mass. Perhaps you can visualize that growing mushroom cloud that rises over Hiroshima, Japan in World War II. Enormous. A mass. One singular mass. Like that. Picture one enormous, polluted, stinking, filthy, vile, black, hideous, terrifying, destructive, deadly, 
damning, guilt-producing, shame-evoking, consequence-bringing, pain and suffering-causing, punishment-demanding, wrath of God-kindling, God-despising, God-despised mass. And its name is sin, singular. That enormous mass called sin finds its origin in the sin of Adam, and it is made up of all of the sins of that organism of elect humanity which is identified in the world in the text as world so that this mass is called world sin and if you would start digging into that mass and pulling things back to look into it and it is so so hideous in that mass you would find all of your sins every single thought and word and deed contrary to the law of god including your own sinfulness and all of the sins of all those who make up what in the text is called the world. Belonging to that mass as you dig into it are all our sins, all your childhood sins, all your teenager sins, all your high school sins. Oh God, remember not those sins of long ago. All your adult sins. All your secret sins, all your public sins, all your school sins, all your church sins, all your household sins, all your work sins, all your vacation sins, all your marriage sins, all those repeated sins, all those besetting sins, all those heart sins, all those tongue sins, all those worship service sins, all those sitting in the pew right now sins. Thousands, millions, billions and billions of sins. Those whose sins contribute to that one mass called sin, they are in number, says the Scripture, more than the stars of the heavens, more than the sand by the seashore. And each one of those little, those Little grains of sand representing an elect human being, each one of them has more sins than you could ever count. And all those sins together now, forming this one mass called world sin. Can you even begin to imagine what it would be like to have that heavy mass suspended above your head? World sin. You would have to be damned. A million times a million times a million times over and over again. If you are responsible for that mass. Can you imagine the fiery indignation of God when He beholds that mass called sin? The sin of the world. This is the gospel. The Lamb of God takes it away. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He takes it away In order for him to take it away, he must first take it. He did that. He came and as it were, he looked at that enormous mass and pointed at it and said to his Father in heaven, Mine. I take it. He assumed responsibility for it. To him was imputed the guilt for it. Not only the guilt for it, but all of the punishment of it. He took it. Now what's striking in the text is that we find the present tense of the verb when we might expect the future tense of the verb. Behold the Lamb of God. But now John the Baptist does not say which or who shall one day take away the sin of the world. He uses the present tense of the verb and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away 
right now, present tense, taking away the sin of the world. Now, of course, and to be sure, it is especially at the end when the full weight of that mass will descend upon the consciousness of our Lord as never before. And that is, of course, why he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and crying, now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful, and why he would sweat those great drops of blood. And it was at the end when the shearers would come and they would lead him into the slaughterhouse of judgment at Golgotha. And especially there on the altar when he was nailed to the cross in all that inky black darkness, especially there, the full weight of that mass descended upon him so he felt it as never before in his body and his soul. The guilt of it, the weight of it, the punishment that it required, and all the vials of God's wrath were opened up and poured down upon him on that altar of the cross so that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Especially at the end. But it wasn't only at the end. Already now, when he comes walking out of that wilderness, where he was tempted by that most lawless rebel of the universe. And he comes to John. He's in the state of humiliation. And he's already taking that mass. And as he proceeds through his ministry, day by day, week by week, he becomes more and more conscious of it. And especially then through Passion Week, all the way to the end. But already now, He's taking it. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh. But here's really the heart of the gospel of the text. Away. He taketh away the sin of the world. His blood paid the price which not one of those picture lambs could ever do. His perfect life and death satisfied God's justice. He is the Lamb of God. And now He sits enthroned at God's right hand and He will apply to His elect people all the benefits of that objective work, applying that work subjectively to His people. So that once for all finished work of the cross, where he took away the sins of his people, objectively, you weren't there, I wasn't there, some 2,000 years ago. Those benefits are applied now to each one of God's elect in a subjective way. So that the Lamb of God, this is guaranteed by his work on that altar, The Lamb of God, now by His Spirit, works in your heart, in my heart, and so works in our heart that we become conscious, conscious, the weight of the burden of our own sin, the guilt of it. We say, Father in heaven, I cannot go on. My sins prevail against me day by day. They are more than I can count. This burden, this guilt I feel more than I can bear. Oh God in heaven, for Jesus' sake, take it away. Forgive me. And he declares to us in the gospel, I forgive you. I take it away. Ah. And we experience sweet peace, the guilt taken away. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What an astonishing picture we have in this text. This enormous mass. And underneath it, not a city, not a kingdom, not a citadel, 
Not 10,000 soldiers. A mighty king with all of his hosts. But underneath, a lamb of all things. A lamb. But not just any lamb. Go back to the beginning. The lamb of God. He takes it away. See him then with the eyes of faith. Know him and trust in him. John saw him. Verse 29, the text. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. Now, of course, John saw him literally with his physical eyes as all in the crowd saw Jesus come walking out of the wilderness. But John saw more than the physical appearance of the man Jesus. Everyone there saw him. They saw a man with his robe, his sandals. If that's all John saw, he never would have exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God! That he saw Jesus for who he really was indicates that John was beholding him with the eyes of faith. He saw him as his own personal Savior and the Savior of all of God's people. And John is determined that others see him too, know him, and believe in him. And therefore he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, that means stop. Take notice. Pay attention. And now look at this one. See Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the call of the Gospel. So that wherever the Gospel goes forth into all the world, there is the setting forth of Jesus as the Lamb of God and all of the blessings and benefits of salvation in Him, the Lamb of God. But there's also the call, whether it is explicit every time the Gospel is preached, or whether it is implicit, see Him, know Him, believe in Him, trust in Him, rest in Him, behold. And because that death on the cross was effectual, the Holy Spirit takes that word of the call and He carries it sovereignly, graciously, irresistibly into the heart of the elect sinner so that He hears the word, behold, and He cannot but Look with the eyes of faith, know, see, and trust in the Lamb of God. See Him. And so this morning, see the Lamb and set your heart by faith upon the Lamb. All other hopes will deceive you. Do not ever set your heart Upon any minister, even if his name is John the Baptist, John always said, don't look at me. You know what? I'm not worthy to get down on my hands and knees and loosen the latchets of his sandal. Don't look at me. John always deflected the sight. Don't look at me. Look at him. He's preferred above me and before me. He must increase. I must decrease. Do not look at me. The Gospel never says, Behold, Reverend so-and-so. Behold, Professor so-and-so. When you do that, when you set your heart upon a man, a minister, you will be brought to shame. The Gospel always says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And secondly, do not set your heart upon your mass, whatever it may be. Now, maybe you have, maybe you have a cancerous mass. That's part of your life right now. Or the child of God has some other heavy, heavy burden that he carries. Don't set your heart upon that so that all you see, all you think about is your mass And then the well-being of your heart depends upon the presence of your mass. If it goes away, then you can be happy and content. But if it doesn't go away, then you will not be happy and you will not be content. So that your soul rises or falls with the presence or the absence 
of the mass, the burden. Don't set your heart upon your mass. The gospel says, look away and behold the Lamb of God and the peace that is in Him. And if your mass is your sin, and it is for all of us, do not fix your heart on your sin. Now you must see your sin and I must see my sin. and We must understand what our sin did to that blessed Savior on that altar. The magnitude of our sin. The punishment that it deserves. The wages of our sin is death. We have to understand that. But you don't set your heart upon your sin and dwell upon your sin and don't go back into your past and start digging up past sins that have already been brought to God in humility and then beating yourself up and tormenting yourself. Don't set your heart upon your sin. Repent, indeed, but don't dwell on the mass of sin. The Gospel says, Behold, the Lamb of God, see Him, and know Him, and trust Him, and have peace and delight in Him. Behold. Now we need that every week. Behold. That, that soul shaker. Behold. Because we get so familiar with the Gospel. We get so accustomed to blood and the altar and the cross. Sometimes we even pray to God and we say, forgive all my sins for Jesus' sake, amen. And we don't mean a word of it. We're not even thinking of what we say. Just vain repetition. We get so used to it all, the gospel. How can that be? Every week we need the soul shaking. Behold, look at him for who he really is the Lamb of God, and to see Him anew and fresh every Sunday and to marvel at our blessed Savior. And God sees to it that our hearts do fix on the Lamb. There is all of our comfort and peace and hope. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we, th we thank Thee for Thy eternal love and Thy faithfulness to Thy promise in giving the one for whom so many looked for so many years. We're still looking for His second coming in glory and power as Thou hast promised. And we know this hope will never make us ashamed. So Father, keep our eye of faith on Him, Thy Lamb for us. In his name we pray, amen.